CFBS. Radio 2. Sit Rep with Christopher Lee. Hello there, it's 4.30 here in central London. I'm Christopher Lee and this is Sit Rep, your defence and foreign affairs programme from BFBS Radio 2. Now, yesterday in Edinburgh, in the chamber of the Scottish Parliament, there was a public debate on a very simple question. Is peace worth fighting for, given the outright opposition to the Gulf War and to the motives of the then Prime Minister Tony Blair for taking the UK into that war and the increasing public opinion that the Afghanistan war, Afghanistan war is unwinnable? The question is, is peace worth fighting for? Is it relevant to everyone inside or outside the services? So that's what we're doing, going to be doing for the next 30 minutes, considering post-war World War II experiences and the suffering of the innocent as well as the guilty. Is it all worth it? With me at the SITREP Roundtable from University College London, the global political analyst, Dr. Martin McCauley, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, who I suppose John has seen, been to more peace conferences than any individual in the Foreign Commonwealth Office ever went to, from Chatham House, where she is director of the Middle East programme, Dr. Claire Spencer, and the cyber security expert, David Livingston, who, as Lieutenant Commander at Livingston, was the helicopter pilot in the Gloucester, was it? That's right. HMS Gloucester during the First first Gulf War. Now, let's start. Uh, John, um, I suppose we just just want to get some opening, quick opening thoughts on this in a couple of sentences. Is it worth fighting for peace? It is and always has been, right from the very beginning of time. uh, I mean, you had the church, Roman Catholic and Protestant, on your side. Uh, There was a just war. It was just to deal with the oppression of the faithful. It carried on throughout the Crusades. It's carried on ever since. Right. Come on, uh, Claire. Well, I'm going to do the typical academic thing and depends what you mean by peace, I'm going to ask, because I think it is worth fighting for, but you have to have a very clear idea of when you set out of achievable aims. So if it's a question of liberating the oppressed, what measures can you take to ensure they remain unoppressed or that they don't fall into worse circumstances afterwards? And that's the question I have. Martin? I would say uh, one shouldn't get involved in fighting for peace if it's not in the national interest. I think nowadays the world has changed. Uh, The Afghan war, the Iraqi war, and the United States military presence in 160 countries has brought home to everyone uh, that military force is not the solution. Uh, You have to go for political, and you've got to stop. You've got to consider, uh, is this really, uh, if you get two countries, say, in Africa or in Latin America, uh, is it in the national interest to intervene uh, and what can you contribute? One has to, uh, I think, scale down. I think that's the, the, the feeling now uh, among the public. They've had enough of Afghanistan and Iraq, and so right, stop, let's stop interfering in the outside world. That's what you hear more and more. Right. Um, David, I mean, you and John are the only two people here who've actually had to go to war to insist on peace. Like Claire, I'd like someone to uh, define the concept of peace. Um, and it's um, in the old days very easy, I suppose, in, in the Cold War, uh, there was, it was very binary. We're either at war or at peace, uh, and that's what the, the scenario of the uh, North German Plains was, and, and, and certainly in my uh, situation in the First Gulf War, where one nation invades another, it's a very easy decision to make in terms of going to war to, to uh, preserve or to, to uh, restore an area to peace. Now the nature of conflict has become more diffuse, I think, in uh, reflecting many things, uh, the globalisation of, uh, of you know, information and so on. And we can get, probably come back to cyber later on. Um, but is peace just... Um, is uh, So 
essentially was Iraq in the late 1990s and the first couple of years of the 2000s at peace? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question, but we still went to war over it, Christopher. Martin. It's a very interesting thing. Fighting for peace was an old communist slogan, and people made a lot of fun of it. He said, if, if you have peace, you shouldn't fight. Uh, and if you're going to fight, there's no peace. But that was a slogan. We fight for peace. Uh, and uh, I think Russia now has realised that uh, 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 that is not a, a very advisable thing to do. Can I, Jim, mind if I just... To yes, John. I think there's a danger of becoming too academic and trying to define what peace is. If you spend so much time wrestling with the, the aftermath of going to war, you might never be able to uh, achieve your immediate object of, of stopping the oppression of, of the faithful. Mm. That's a point which the Chilcot Inquiry which is um, considering um, certainly the, the oral evidence at the moment before it gets to the legal statements. The Chilcott inquiry on the Iraq war, a lot of the time and a lot of the criticism has been not knowing what we were supposed to do after the initial operation there, John. That is true. It wasn't thought through in terms of how are you going to achieve stability quickly without uh, the whole situation descending into case and disorder, looting of museums, inability to sustain the basic services of water and electricity? That was never thought through. In fact, one of the uh, people in the Foreign Office who went there to deal with the, uh, the great humanitarian problems uh, was not able to get a, a computer, wasn't able to get uh, any communication back to London until he went to the Americans. OK, so, and listen, I just want to go through what... Very quickly, the, 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 the normal six conditions that have to be satisfied uh, before we consider a just war, whether it was a just, just idea to go to war. The war must, first of all, be for a just cause. Two, the war must be lawfully declared by a lawful authority. Yeah? Think about Iraq. Mm. The intention behind the war must be good. I'm not sure how you define that. All other ways of resolving the problem should have been tried first. Mm. There must be a reasonable chance of success. I mean, you want it every way. And the means used must be in, pro in proportion to the end that the war seeks to achieve. Well, considering that um, uh, last week, uh, two weeks ago, uh, was the anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that last point, using uh, the means in proportion uh, to the end that the war seeks to achieve... Anybody have any definitions that they would, uh, practical definitions, Martin, of a just war? <clears throat> a just war is one where your security is threatened. That would be uh, the average person, if you ask a person, when do you go to war? You go to war to defend yourself. Uh, you don't go to war uh, for imperial reasons, to extend your influence uh, or to put somebody you would like in power or keep somebody in power in country X. That would be the average person now would say, no, we, we only go to war to defend ourselves. Okay, Claire. Well, I think in a post-imperial age, we also ought to consider what the people in question on the ground actually want. I think the assumption going into Iraq is that lib liberation from Saddam Hussein was what the majority wanted. Uh, but I think possibly the majority, who clearly were very difficult to consult in advance, so this is a difficulty with this, but would not necessarily have agreed uh, that it was a just war, given the consequences to them, their families. I mean, we, we talked about disruption of services. We haven't talked about the 
large numbers of people who were actually killed in the first few weeks. If you look at the figures Iraq body count and others have, have put in the public arena, um, basically, you know, the first two, three years of war, the majority were killed in the first three weeks. In other words, uh, airstrikes, etc. How many? Do we know? I think uh, what was... I can't remember the exact figures, but it, I think over the first two, three years it was 25,000. I think they posted on their website of which a third... This was the most controversial point when they first published their reports. A third were killed. There, David, we get into the other side of it. If we, you know, the just war is something that the war must be for a just cause. Well, that's pretty difficult to define, isn't it? And then Martin was saying, well, you've got to, you go to defend your interests. But in in an age of globalisation is rather like being in an, an imperial age in as much that my... My interest can be anywhere that somebody is not buying my computers or my motor cars or whatever. Um, how should that just war be fought? That's the next thing. Innocent people, non-competence, should not be harmed. Almost impossible. We have this terrible expression that I first heard. Collateral, collateral damage. Yeah. Um, the just war, it, it, it is actually when all other means have actually broken down, Christopher, and that is in all the diplomatic means, all of the, um, all of the economic means to apply pressure to the, um, the, uh, the belligerent state, as it were. Um, in the end, uh, that is all, the, the, the committal of military forces is just a lot, you know, an extension of, of that diplomacy or the failure of that diplomacy to come to, to a satisfactory resolution. Um, But we have to look at things in the context of um, the globalising information age, um, the way that economies are interlinked these days and and how interdependent we are all becoming on each other. And, of course, we have the the conflict in Afghanistan at the moment, uh, which we say is there to... um, uh, to reduce the threat of terrorism on our, our streets and, of course, to reduce the narcotics trade. But uh, another out or another sort of purpose behind this surely is you know, with, with uh, Pakistan and India uh, both possessing nuclear weapons these days, um, it is it's probably very unwise to have an insecure and ungovernable, uh, ungoverned state uh, bordering a state that actually has uh, possesses nuclear weapons. Martin, I was thinking of Iran and Israel when you're thinking about uh, ways of resolving the problem, all ways of resolving the problem should have been tried first. There are no diplomatic relations. They don't talk to one another. They may talk to one another secretly, but uh, openly they don't. And one state says it's going to destroy the other. Uh, so therefore, from Israel's perspective, um, would it be a just war if they launched a war against the first strike against Iran, arguing that if they don't do that, Iran would hit them first? Uh, you, have, you have a terrible moral problem. The outside world is a terrible moral problem here. Uh, is it a preventive war? Is it pre- possible? Is it uh, uh, legal? Is it moral to engage in preventive war if you think that uh, your enemy in one year, two year, three time years will have the power to destroy you? John, John Dickey, um, all these guidelines uh, and all these ideas are great. Um, I wonder if we're sophisticated enough to follow a lot of these rules, such as getting illegal requirements, etc., particularly when the enemy, the enemy may not have the same rules. Indeed. But before we get to that point, I think I would like to take up the point you made so astutely about intention. There is a classic example still with us today over uh, the controversy on intention. That is the invasion of Turkey into Cyprus in 1974. 
I agree, if you look at it from the Greek Cypriot point of view, it was not a just war. But look at it from the other side. If the Turks had not invaded, you would have had a puppet government under Nicholas Sampson, a disreputable journalist who had been put there by the Greek colonels. Macarius had to escape the country. It would have ruined the country if there had been no action taken. Right. Come back to this idea then that the... Um, you, well, it follows on from that. You can go to war, but the other side may say, well, I don't mind about these rules. What, what's restricting you? We have, for example, General Petraeus mm-hmm. saying we must be careful not to um, to kill population in, in our efforts to sort of bring about peace. Very difficult to follow. I think it was important for him to issue that directive about reducing uh, the casualties and civilians and also to have a recognition of the need to behave in accordance with the social uh, customs of, of the country. I mean, in Afghanistan, there are all sorts of taboos that are possibly ignored uh, and cause damage in the relationship and winning the hearts and minds. So I think you have to maintain your own standards regardless of whether they are not accepted by your enemy. Uh, David, when, um, let's, let's think of from 1982 when uh, we went south to get back the Falklands... That seemed to be, um, to everybody in the United Kingdom, that seemed to be a reasonable thing to go and do. Um, When uh, people like yourself went in 91 uh, to get back Kuwait from Saddam, that also seemed a reasonable thing. We had had an agreement to do that sort of thing. But we weren't talking about trying to bring about peace. We were trying to bring about a change of something. There's no reason why, some might have said that um, the Falklands wouldn't have lived in peace after an Argentine invasion. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but there's no reason why um, that might not have been the case. There's no reason to think that uh, the people of Kuwait might have lived peacefully. So it's very difficult to sort of define peace itself, which is what Claire was bringing out at the beginning. And and I think so too, but I think in terms of uh, one... Uh, one nation imposing its will upon another and taking over that nation, uh, um, the nation's sovereign space, is by all intents and purposes a warlike act, especially if you have armed, uh, you know, armed divisions, etc., um, as part of, that, uh, part of that takeover. Might you have lived in peace afterwards, though? It might have lived in peace, but under, under the, 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 wrong, the wrong governance, of course, because even though certainly sort of Q8 wasn't... Uh, one could question the level of democracy um, of Q8 in the early 1990s. Um, but who uh, decides which government is right and wrong? I, I mean, was the governor uh, of, of Saddam Hussein wrong? Did he have to be removed? Well, th- these are different cases. The Falklands and Kuwait were all about one government trying to change territory. the sovereign... Yeah, it was territory and changing sovereign rules in which everyone pretty much is agreed that you do not change uh, boundaries, international boundaries, unilaterally by invasion, because the implications affect everybody, and so therefore there's, there's an international consensus. Except I think the difficulty, the difficulty is when you're in the business, which we now are, of regime change, which, don't forget, at the time of the first uh, Gulf War, was a taboo. I mean, the, uh, the President Bush at the time, the first President Bush, decided not to carry on, despite urging to Baghdad to remove Saddam Hussein, because it was beyond the remit of the mission that was put together, mm-hmm. which included a number of Arab states. Now, the reason there's been opposition 
uh, to the subsequent war in Iraq is precisely this sense that the so-called international community now consists of those who dominate the UN Security Council and are fashioning the world in their own image. And this includes over the issue of Iran, where the requirement not to acquire nuclear weapon is largely being requested by those who may wish to reduce their nuclear arsenals but have no immediate intention, including our government, to remove them entirely. So the language of hypocrisy is rife throughout the Middle East, saying, why is it you require this of Iran where you're not requiring it of Israel or yourselves? Martin, it comes down to power. A country, there are only a few countries in the world, arguably one, uh, which can speak and can argue, they argue their case morally, as George Bush did. We have a moral, uh, uh, there's a moral imperative here and so on. We have the means to do it. Uh, and at that time they believed they could do it. So therefore it depends who you are and what power you are. It's and also the legality of your action. I mean, you, who decides on the legality of your action? It comes down to who has power. Uh, and the United States at that time had the power and they could, if you like, neuter the UN. They could actually say, if you don't give us the go-ahead, we will go ahead. Uh, they didn't say that actually, but uh, in reality they did. They had the but power to do the United so. States, but they it had the power to, to this country. I mean, this country, uh, the Prime Minister, uh, could have taken a different point of view. It could, they could have, but this, this country does not have the military power uh, to unilaterally decide Therefore, this country... It has the power to say, no, we won't take part. Mm. Yes, but you, uh, you only go in as a coalition partner. And when you go in as a coalition partner with the United States, you go in as a junior partner. The United States decides you what see, the objectives are. Martin, you're, you're actually, you're, Martin and you, John, you're making the perfect sort of point here about um, establishing what you think peace is for. Um, is this peace there that, so you can judge... If you look out of the White House window or the Kremlin window, what do you regard as being peaceful? I can live with that, therefore that country is at peace. Um, and and as, as John says, but we don't have to go along with it. No, we don't have to go along with it, but Britain uh, so far has believed it has to go along with the United States because... It didn't have to. I mean, they had a, Vietnam, an attorney general well, no, um, who Blair, had to decide on the legality of the war. Tony Blair he was believed. uncertain because of the Foreign Office guidance was against the legality. He went mm. to the United States and was somehow persuaded that there was a legal case, came back and told Blair, and that's what enabled Blair to go to the House of Commons and say there was a legal case. Yeah. Uh, Tony Blair believed he had to commit himself to it, and he was given the highest... Or what was it, the, the Congress Medal or something? Yeah. Uh, which he didn't, he didn't have the nerve to go and collect. Yeah. Uh, well, he did eventually. Did he? But did that he doesn't justify his action. In yeah, fact, he, he was, was a coalition partner. But he was a junior partner, he was a coalition partner. Spain went Listen, we're getting off the... Hang on, we're getting, we're getting away from this sort of basic thing, and that is that is peace worth fighting for? Um, uh, it's our definitions of peace, which, as Claire says, we've got to... I mean, Claire, do, have you got one? A deft, how do you well, decide no, I think what is peace? It's very subjective because, uh, as I say, these recent wars are more to do with rearranging the furniture internally within individual states and societies. Now, on, in this case, the Americans were listening, in the case of Iraq, to a bunch of expats who basically had their own vision, uh, Iraqi expats, which may or may not have matched, had we given the choice to the Iraqi people, what the Iraqis themselves wanted. I mean, it seemed to me evident that if they could choose not to have Saddam Hussein, they probably would have said not, but they weren't given the options of what happened afterwards. Are you saying, I mean, the, the terrible things that went on in, in Iraq under Saddam, um, 
were relative, weren't they? Well, I mean, it's difficult to say because they were particularly horrific on certain populations like the Southern Cheers and the Kurds. And, you know, we've all heard about the the, Mm. the horrific chemical bombings on populations. I mean, it was extremely nasty uh, regime. But I think we really need to think about the costs of going to war in the longer term as opposed to much more sophisticated diplomacy, which is involves carrots and sticks and more intelligent ways of undermining regimes that are clearly uh, not respecting their own citizens. Uh, that seems to me the way forward is to think much more carefully. For example, the the weapons inspections in Iraq weren't given time to actually finish their, their work. There was clearly a timetable. I think the legitimacy of the whole thing was undermined as much by the urgency of getting on with it under any circumstances yeah, as uh, by the need to do it then. Because can I just... Saddam Hussein had been doing what he'd been doing for years beforehand and nobody thought to unseat Martin, him. Martin, let, let me... Let me just swing this around, because uh, Iraq was something we we understood and we took a view on, Um, and there was oil. Now, Martin, why didn't we therefore make the same judgments about wanting to bring peace, it would be in everybody's interest, into Rwanda? Uh, Because uh, it is in the centre of Africa... Uh, so we couldn't get there very easily. First of all, you couldn't get. You had to have permission from various states to get there, and secondly, there was no strategic reason for that. It didn't well, have apart u- from people getting killed. Humanitarian no, reason, uh, but, but it didn't have uranium or oil or cobalt or something which is absolutely vital to the world economy. So we're getting into definitions of peace now. Aren't we? Mm. So we yeah. can get at peace peacefully. We can get at the resources of a country, whether it's the intellectual support or whether it's the, uh, the minerals, for Yes, you've got a classic case at present, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, with in, the, in the northern province, Kiva, which is a mineral very, very rich, and so on. Uh, do you intervene? Uh, uh, you can argue from a humanitarian, a moral perspective, a just war. Yes, you should go in because of the things that are happening and so on. Uh, but then from the other point of view, um, how are you going to get out? What, what are you going to do? Get in there? Occupy the place, um, take all the minerals for yourself, and then get out. Uh, it doesn't look very good. It becomes a terrible moral maze. Uh, and uh, the the invasion of Iraq and now Afghanistan has turned the public, the general perspective you get now, all this talk about a just war and intervening for humanitarian reasons and so on. The basic the basic answer you get is let somebody else do it. What what happens when war ends? Because we've 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 talked about particularly I- I- Iraq. We're waiting for, um, I suppose, Afghanistan to come to some sort of conclusion. Um, when war ends, comes the great test, doesn't it? I mean, was the peace worth the war? And that includes, I suppose, if not who is responsible, but may they be held responsible? And we see this in the Chilcot inquiry, John. Well, there is a, a mechanism in the United Nations. There are currently 16 peacekeeping operations being undertaken by, I'm told, about 120,000 men. Since uh, the UN was formed in 1948, uh, there have been 63 um, operations into the field in the cause of peace. But as we've seen, for example, after the fighting between Israel and uh, uh, Hamas in, in Gaza, the United Nations is, is relatively powerless after us. UNRWA has been trying to get uh, reconstruction going uh, for the last 18 months and, and still the goods are not allowed into the territory. There's a limit to the amount of international uh, operation after any war. Mm-hmm. Martin? You've got a case 
Uh, let me take a hypothetical case. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it is a, a possibility, a war between China and Iran over the Himalayas, mm. where China would like to close off Tibet, uh, would like to move down into northern India, and they don't accept the McMahon line. They could, they could say that was a British colonial line and so on. We don't recognize it, uh, and therefore we wish to uh, obtain territory which we believe to be ours. Now, if uh, 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 um, China then invaded northern India, how would we react? Would Britain say, this is, too, 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 this is terrible, this is a war of aggression? The China would say, uh, no, 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 this is our territory. Well, all we're doing is occupying territory which was ours and which was taken away from us by imperial and imperial power in the past. Uh, um, that would then be, uh, and the Indians would then ask for, perhaps would ask for help and so on and so on. Where would we be? How would we judge whether we should militarily, and the Indians need military aid, military intervene in that war? Claire. I think we'd probably find some kind of uh, language along the lines that I've spoken about already of self-determination because it, it really isn't in anyone's interest that people unilaterally take over territory because of the implications for everybody else. But I want to go back to the question of, uh, that you pose, Christopher, about you know, how do we manage the peace. One of my concerns is in this new kind of messy war situation in Iraq and Afghanistan is that it's a very long time coming to see what peace looks like because while there are still instances of violence and disruption and things have not settled down into a new pattern. There isn't a clear central path of a legitimate government, you know, putting all their efforts into uh, developing the place rather than extra security spending, which results as much from the war. I mean, they, they weren't spending as much on security in either Iraq or well, probably Saddam was, but in, in terms of protecting the peace um, before the war. How long does this not quite war but not quite peace uh, situation go on for it could be many many years it and it could it take last, a long time to settle yes, down it will last until the coalition forces realize that they cannot set the agenda for afghanistan afghanistan has to well, ignore it, itself. Uh, yeah ignore afghanistan i mean this is more it's a bigger point here isn't there you go to you go to war to hopefully preserve or create peace and the consequences of that war are not peaceful how then do you justify having gone to war in retrospect. Well, that, surely, that surely reflects a failure in, in, in essentially, let's say, in our, in, our, um, in our example in the United Kingdom, uh, of, the, of the, uh, the, government, you know, the Whitehall machine, to understand that war is not just a matter of, of the Ministry of Defence mounting an operation and going into uh, some foreign country, having a fight, and then coming out again. It, it means you've got to engage from the very earliest part of the war, the planning of post-conflict reconstruction, how to stabilise the, the region in the future and this is engagement by the Foreign Commonwealth Office, by DFID, etc, etc. How much has uh, the, the terrible warfare possible of nuclear weaponry and then the emergence of cyber warfare, David, how much has that helped us understand the original question, is peace worth going to war over? I think the, the the interesting thing about cyber is that it's, it is it uh, is an emerging and very large problem, uh, Christopher. Uh, the implications uh, or the understanding of what cyber warfare actually is and what might entail is is uh, is actually quite complex and, and requires a, a lot more debate, because cyber reaches into every part of a the military machine, but also into the civil apparatus as well, the critical national infrastructure, all of our utilities, all of our information system, all of our you know. Uh, all of our payment system and so on. 
Um, one, when, you, when one nation starts attacking in the cyber field, the, uh, the implications can be very widespread indeed. Right. Listen, we've got a minute and a half. Um, we won't have changed our minds. John, you started off by saying, yes, it is always worth going to war to preserve peace. And you've done it. I think it's the only uh, course of action for any civilised society that they accept a duty uh, of, of not just helping themselves but helping other people uh, to fulfil their potential. And if that potential is being threatened by an external force, uh, that should be resisted and uh, there's no other alternative. Right, Claire. Uh, I would say yes, but when the objectives are very clearly defined and realisable, and I think we could have done a situation or gone into a situation like Rwanda because that was uh, very basic warfare, if you like, that a more sophisticated military force could have put a stop to fairly quickly. I think in the more complex situations, particularly where the terrain, as is the case in Afghanistan, argues against that, no. Yes, yeah, Martin, very agree, briefly. I would argue against that, that we should only go if it's in our national interest. Uh, how do we define it in nowadays of globalisation? If it is a threat to our security, for instance, Rwanda, I would, I would uh, oppose intervening in Rwanda. Uh, I would oppose intervening in any African conflict uh, because um, you do more harm than good and uh, it's up to the Africans really right. to decide. David, was it worth going to war? I went to war to restore peace. I don't have a problem with it, Christopher. It was worth it. Right. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, the question, um, sometimes it's answered, is peace worth going to war over? Quite often it leaves questions unanswered. Thanks to uh, this week to Martin McCauley, David Livingstone, Claire Spencer and to John Dickey. We're back next week, BFBS Radio 2 at 4.30 UK time. We'll be asking which way is the Defence Review going and is the writing on the wall for the British Army in Germany. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the hut. with Christopher Lee.